Let's move into our time here with Romans chapter 3. Now, as I have been doing the last few times we're together, I'm going to have us all read a passage in unison. (coughs) This time I'm going to do it in two parts. We're going to start by reading just verses 1 through 8 together. Then I'll come back and expound it because this particular passage has some unique challenges. And I think it's important that we just all read it, just have at least a general idea, at least how the ESV presents it. So here we go, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Okay, that was easy. We can go home. You all figured it out. Um, Think about it this way. This passage is constructed oddly. And when you think that he spent much of chapter 2 setting up the idea that the Jews are just as guilty of sin as Gentiles, that they're equal in the uh, uh, idea of condemnation or judgment. But Paul has been teaching this for almost 20 years now. Now I've been in the publishing side of the equation. My first 10 years I was on the bookselling side. But for the last 30 years I've been on the publishing side of the equation. And I can pretty much anticipate any question that's going to come from the audience if I'm on a topic. In fact, I've gotten to the point where many of my lectures, I don't even carry my notes because I know the material so well. And the questions are common because they don't know. This is the first time they've come across this information or they hear something I say and they say, well, then what about this? And then we have to work through the nuances of that particular topic. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's anticipating the questions of the Roman church. Because remember, he's writing to a congregation that he hasn't visited yet. He's writing to people who don't know him, and most likely, There may be one or two in that group that has heard him, but they've not sat under his teaching necessarily. So he's anticipating 
what is going to be asked. And these are some pretty, I don't say, unusual twists to what would normally be said. For example, he starts out in verse 1 and he says, then what advantage has the Jew and what values of circumcision? He has just spent all of chapter 2 saying there is no advantage. And that circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. So you'd expect his answer to that to be, well, no. But what does he answer? Well, much in every way. You kind of go, okay, now I'm confused. <laughs> and I think that's Paul's point. He's trying to make them think through these topics. Imagine verses 1 through 8 as an imaginary dialogue between people to whom he's lecturing and, and himself and in responding to the theological question of what is the role of judgment, what is the role of the Jewish um, advantage, if you want to call it that. Now, let me put it this way. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of his multi-volume uh, sermons on uh, the book of Romans. I think it took him eight years to preach through Romans. We are not doing that. Um, but this is his opening paragraph on this passage right here. This is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most brilliant expositors of the biblical text in the 20th century. He writes, it is generally agreed that this is one of the most difficult passages, not only in the Epistle of Romans, but in the whole of Scripture. Oh, gee, thanks. Here we are, and I'm supposed to try to make it clear. You'll notice that it is a very fine, a very closely woven argument. And some may be inclined to ask, is all of this necessary? I mean, why all this subtle argument? Why does the apostle bother with this kind of thing which is so difficult to follow and to understand? And the answer is that the fault is not with the apostle Paul. He had no desire to write like this, I am perfectly certain, and probably dearly wished it weren't necessary for him to do so. But he has to do it because of the questions people ask and because of the arguments which they put up. As a wise teacher and one who is anxious that these Christians in Rome would be well grounded and established in the faith, he has to meet all possible arguments and every kind of eventuality. Paul, as a preacher, has the same experience as every other preacher. He makes a statement which he thinks is perfectly plain and clear. But it seems to be that the receiving end hear it in a different manner and put an odd twist to it today. In, and actually say, but what about this? John Piper, quote, In my study of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, my brain almost broke trying to understand the complexity of this paragraph. 
So I really do think we just need to go home right now <laughs> because I'm not going to be able to fix your brain and there's, this is not simple. It seems somewhat clear when you read it the first time. The problem is when you start digging into the Greek, if we had multiple translations in this room, they will disagree with each other in how these passages are rendered. And that makes it even more difficult because let's say you were leading a Bible study on this and I believe you, know, you would have a carrying an old NIV and someone else carrying a new NIV and someone else carrying a New Living Translation, someone else a New American Standard, someone else the ESV and someone else the King James and they do not render this identically. That's why it's such a complicated passage. So I struggled. I read a lot. And thank you for whoever gave me the happy birthday United States gift of paper. Uh, because I usually print out around 200 to 250 pages of material every week just to prepare. And in this particular week, I was pulling out all of the 30-odd commentaries I own on Romans and going, oh. And it was kind of hard to do some of this while I was on the road, too. So anyway, um, it's a little mind-breaking and mind-bending. But I came across John Stott's commentary on Romans. And what he did helped me simplify it. And I hope it helped and simplifies it for you. He sees four major questions or challenges to Paul in this passage. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6, and verses 7 and 8. So if you want to put a line across your page and write down these challenges, it can help illustrate what Paul is trying to combat. So the first challenge in verses 1 and 2, or the question that he's trying to answer to critics, is that Paul's teaching undermines God's covenant. Verses 1 and 2, the challenge that Paul is addressing is that he is being accused of undermining God's covenant. So if you look at how it's written, it may not be evident right away that this is what he's answering, but look at it carefully. He says, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? He isn't much in every way. And then he doesn't talk about circumcision. Because he already has in the previous chapter. Instead, the next sentence begins with the Greek word proton or first. First of all, or the ESV says to begin with, and by the way, there's no number two until chapter nine. <laughs> so first of all, and then he just kind of forgets that he had started a list, uh, but he does not really come back to this until chapter nine, which is rather annoying to us who think things normally and logically. He says to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the word of God. 
he's trying to say, if you're saying I'm undermining God's covenant, I'm reestablishing to you that the, not that they had circumcision, that's a circumcision of the heart, but what they had was tangible. They were entrusted with my word, with the Torah, with the prophets, with the Psalms and the Proverbs and the books of wisdom. You go all the way back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. I'll get there eventually. Okay, Psalm 55, verse 11. <clears throat> my word be, shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God states the power of his word and its importance. And Paul is pointing at that saying, that's one thing the Gentiles did not have. They did not, they were not entrusted with it. They may have heard it, but they were not commanded to preserve it. That is a extraordinary advantage. Not that issue of circumcision. You just kind of say, you know, whatever. Circumcision, we've already answered that question. Let's look at what their true advantage is, and that is the Word of God. Then verses 3 and 4. The accusation that Paul's teaching nullifies God's faithfulness. Now, that sounds, again, like an odd argument. I mean, we read Paul's letters, we, re we read his writings, and, you know, they're an expression of all the various things that he may have said or taught. How could anybody accuse him of that? But look at how he's, he renders it in verses 3 and 4. But what if some meaning Jews, were unfaithful. Does their faithlessness or lack of faith nullify the faithfulness of God? That, again, that's an odd statement. So, in other words, if there were those who were without faith, and yet God judges them, then God isn't being faithful to them because he's judging them. You see, there's a concept among the Jewish faith that they have immunity, that they got a pass because they're special. Mm -hmm. That they got a get out of jail free card when they played the game of Monopoly and used it in the other game called the game of life. What if some were, un were unfaithful? Does their lack of faith or their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he goes, no, by no means, not at all. God forbid. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. 
that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, which is a quote from Psalm 51, verse 4. Now, you could write down Psalm 51, verse 4, but do you remember the circumstances of Psalm 51? David has been, it's been revealed. His sin has been revealed with Bathsheba. This is his psalm of repentance. And in this psalm, in Psalm 51 verse 4, he writes that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. To be justified in your words, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This idea of let God be true, John Calvin calls this the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. God is true. He is truth with a capital T. When Pilate later says, what is truth? You almost have to laugh at the question. He's standing right in front of it, and he can't see it. If God be true and everyone were a liar, you're justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The faithfulness, this idea that God is unfair, is a fallacious argument. So, let's go to verses 5 and 6. Here, as John Stott put it, he is accused that Paul is te- that Paul's teaching undermines God's justice, which goes back to this idea that the Jews thought that they were immune to judgment. How can God be righteous when he judges Jews? If our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? And I speak in human words. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? How could could God judge anything? And it just carries forward. Again, it's somewhat counterintuitive and seems to be an odd discussion. And it also seems to be an odd thing for someone to even ask or accuse Paul of. Paul, you're undermining God's justice because God is judging people. But isn't God a God of love? Well, yeah, he is both. Well, let's move on. 7 and 8, verse 7 and 8. Paul teaches falsely. I'm sorry, Paul's teaching falsely promotes God's glory. Again, a counterintuitive claim. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned? Because wasn't my sin the reason why God was being glorified? So why not do evil that good may come? 
as some people have slanderously charged us with saying, and their condemnation is just. Now you see why John Piper's brain hurts and why mine hurts? This is confusing. It doesn't seem to make sense. And there are also questions we don't ask, typically. I'll throw in a scholar here, Douglas Moo. Yes, it is spelled M-O-O. Uh, he is professor of New Testament at Wheaton. I think this is commentary number three on Romans of his. He's got one that's twice this big and very scholarly. He's got one that's thinner and even more simple. This is kind of in between. Verse 8 is difficult to translate and to understand. Gee, thanks, Dr. Moo. Scum, some scholars think that Paul continues the objection from verse 7, only to dismiss the whole line of reasoning at the end of the verse with, with the quote, their condemnation is deserved. But it makes better sense of the flow if verse 8 is Paul's own counter-question designed to show the absurdity of the objection in verse 7. If the objector is right, and if God should not condemn Jews when they sin because their sin enhances God's glory, then the general inference would be that sin is justified as long as it brings good. Let us do evil, that good may result, is a logical conclusion if you look at sin this way. In an ironic twist, Paul adds a parenthesis noting that some people, probably Jews, have accused Paul of teaching this very thing. So, I looked around trying to find one method that might help clear this up. And I came across a dialogue using these verses between an objector, someone who's objecting, and Paul. Would you like to be Paul? Sure. Sure. So you get to read the yellow highlighted lines. You have to stand up, come on over here, and we're going to face off. Okay. I am the objector. I'm the bad guy. I actually thought of being the good guy, but I thought it'd be nicer too when it came into the good guy. So I'm the objector. Now, what we're going to be doing is reading a variation of the text that you have done in the form as if we're in a classroom setting or in a debate. Objector. The result that you have been saying is that there's no difference between Gentile and Jew, and they are exact, in exactly the same position. Do you really mean that? By no means. Well, what then is the difference? Well, for one thing, the Jew possesses what the Gentiles never so directly possessed the commandments of God. Well, granted, but, but what if some of the Jews disobeyed these commandments and were unfaithful to God and came under his condemnation? You just said that God gave the Jews a special position and a special promise. And now you go on to say that at least some of them are under the condemnation of God. Does that mean that God has broken his promise and has shown himself to be unjust and unreliable? Well, far from it. 
What it does show is that there is no favoritism with God and that he punishes sin wherever he sees it. The very fact that he condemns the unfaithful Jews is the best possible proof of his absolute justice. He might have been expected to overlook the sins of this special people of his, but he does not. Well, very well then. Um, but all you have done is to succeed in showing that my disobedience has given God an opportunity to demonstrate his righteousness. My infidelity has given God a marvelous opportunity to demonstrate his fidelity. My sin is, therefore, an excellent thing. It has given God a chance to show how good he can, he, that he is. I may have done evil, but good has come from it. You can't surely condemn a man for giving God a chance to show his justice. An argument like that is beneath contempt. <laughs> you have only to state it to see how intolerable it is. Now does the passage make sense? So you can see what they're trying to do is justify their sin. That's what all of this twisty-turny, strange composition is showing that there are people in the congregation. Remember, he's writing it to the Roman church. That there are people in the congregation that are trying to justify their unrighteousness. And then accusing Paul of twisting the scriptures. When in fact, they're the very ones that are twisting the scripture. We run into this type of twistiness in our daily lives when we're dealing with people that are either right on the edge of an understanding of Christianity, they know enough just to be dangerous, or know enough just to twist it completely wrong and upend it. And our job is to simply confront it and say, by no means, that is not what I'm saying. But be careful you don't fall into their trap because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, ha ha, gotcha. I gotcha. Now I can justify my thoughts. Yeah. This is interesting to me because we started with this question about this Canaanite woman being called a duck. And, you know, these kids have this question about this. Well, I have that same thing happen. Is there an internet thing going on right now? I don't know if you know about it. Um, but it, it's trying to claim that God's racist. Right. And they use this particular line to prove he's racist. Right. And it's interesting because as we're going through this thing, this is exactly what I ended up going through in talking to these people because uh, I had to go to show them that God punished Israel too. It, it wasn't set off as this perfect race that could do no wrong, right? But that God destroyed these other lands around them because they sinned. And once even his chosen people sinned, he destroyed them too. Right. So it wasn't race that he was after, but love and obedience. Their heart. And their hearts. And, these, and they were supposed to be this, dispens this dispenser of the truth, the vessels of this word. And instead they walked away from it. And, and it, But you're talking about this convolution that happens of this twisting and these, you say, How did you get there? Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, it, in their mind, it's logical. 
because they're taking one thing that in our Western mentality sounds wrong, not forgetting the historical context in which it's placed, and then going from there. William Newell has this to say about this particular passage. Because I will say a lot of people will come to this passage, read it once and go, I don't have the time. I can't figure this out. This, I don't even know what he's talking about. It doesn't matter. Let's just move on to Romans 3.23 for the wages of sin is death. Because I get that. And that's just a couple verses later. But remember, he's always setting up the next statement that he is an incredible orator in that regard. But William Newell says this, if we professing Christians consign this whole passage to the Jew, we fall directly into the same terrible trap. Whole multitudes today in Christendom, sheltered in their imagination by the fact that they have joined some church, resent the very doctrines that Paul here insists on. Thousands of so-called church members are not, not only have never been brought under real conviction of sin and guilt and personal danger, but rise in anger like the Jews of Paul's day when one preaches that their danger is directed to them. If God paid no attention whatever to the claim of the Jew to be exempt from judgment because he was a Jew, neither will he pay any attention to the claim of the Baptist or the Presbyterian or the Episcopalian, or the Methodist as such. For everyone alike are guilty and common sinners. What avails before a holy God, oh, sorry, I'm phrasing this wrong. What avails before a holy God the special religious name that a sinner might call themselves? This book of Romans will do you and me no good if we apply it only to Jews and Mormons. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's brilliant, because he's right. We tend to go, oh, look at those people, those bad Jews, they had it all. And Jesus looks at us and goes, <clears throat> so do you. And you alike are under condemnation. And never forget it. Well, Verse 9 reads, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Nope. Not at all. Now, verse 9, you need to be very careful because the ESV and many other translations are interpreting because the word Jew is not in the Greek text. You can cross it out. It's not there. What then? Are we any better off? Well, in context, he is speaking to the Jew, or it's, that is the context of starting back at verse 1. But that's an interpretation, an additional clarity that the translators are adding. It doesn't change its meaning necessarily, but we have to be careful because there, again, you run into people that go off and say, well, now he's, now he's changing and he's now talking to Gentiles. I, no, he's still in the same context. What then, are we any better off? Well, not at all. We've already charged that all 
both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, note what he has intentionally used in his language. That all, both Jews and Greeks, are sinners. He doesn't write that. That all, both Jews and Greeks, have committed sin. He doesn't write that. He says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, which is the theological idea of the fall. The idea that all are fallen people. All. Now, he's very specific in 3.23, where he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So not that he's backing away from that, but he's not at that point yet in his presentation. He uses the phrase under sin earlier in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3.22, he writes, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So this idea of us being under sin and therefore are sinful is a theological statement that he is making. So now, we will, I'd like us all to read the passage in front of you from starting in verse 10 through verse 20. Let's read it in unison so we know the text that we are going to be studying. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And I hand out for everyone. So you have a handy dandy trusty chart to look at. Because it says, verse 10, as it is written, and he quotes from Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah. All together. Now, there's a theory that when Paul quotes this passage, he's quoting a passage that's already been circulating in the early church. That this was some sort of teaching that had been passed around. Um, I don't tend to believe that. Um, because if you look at Paul's writings, he does this frequently. He will, they call it a rabbinical stringing of pearls. 
where the rabbi will stand up and pluck various verses together in a presentation. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I kind of do need that. That would be important. Uh, it's my notes. Yeah, uh, thank you. You saved me. I would have been going. Anyway, um, your chart on the left-hand column is the text that you have before you. And on the right-hand column is the text from which it is drawn. Now, where there is deviation in the Hebrew into the Greek is because Paul is quoting frequently from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. So there are those who have made a big deal where they go in and they compare the Hebrew text with the Greek text and go, oh, look, Paul's doing that. And then sometimes he doesn't even quote it directly, as in verbatim. Again, a very common rabbinical method of teaching. It wasn't like he was doing something illegal and he was, you know, faking it. It's just, that's just how they taught and how they presented things. So we don't get too caught up in that type of breakdown. Now, if you were to just look at the litany of ills from verse 10 through verse 18, you will find 14 indictments about humanity. You can actually just go in there and number them if you'd like for your own interest. That's quite a litany. If you thought Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 is a condemnation of society, he kind of tops it with this list. This is really extraordinary. Now Douglas Moo, and he didn't do it in this commentary, he actually did it in another one, where he broke down the 18 verses into four macro categories, I guess you would call it that. And you can take your chart and put this kind of in a, um, a thing on the side. I think she's going to want a handout. seeing what we're seeing here. Um, verses 10 through 12 are five statements on the universality of sin. You can even see them there. There is no one righteous. There is no one who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside, and there is none that does good. There's five of them right there. Boom, 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 boom. Verses 13 and 14 represent sins of speech. Verses 15 to 17 represents sins of violence. And then verse 18 is a final proof exposing the root of all sin. If you take that outline and you take the last statement as the root of all sin being there was no fear of God before their eyes all the rest of it makes sense I probably if it were me 
and I'm glad Paul isn't me, but I probably would have started with verse 18. And then present it, because often we'll say, when, we're, when we take English, we talk about thesis sentence, mm -hmm. and then we break it down. Well, he leaves the thesis sentences as the conclusion, which is really powerful. Because if we were to, you know, kind of whip up the crowd and say whatever's wrong in the world, and we start re rattling through these verses, we're going to start cheering, going, yay! And there's no fear of God before their eyes. You're right! And then Paul says, and oh, by the way, I'm talking to you. Not about them. Remember how chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1, is all about they and them? And chapter 2 of Romans is all about you and yours? He switched to be very direct. Some things to look at here. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks to God. All have turned aside. That phrase, turned aside, is a Greek word called eklino. E-K-K-L-I-N-O. Eklino, which means to bend away. Not turn away, but to bend away. So imagine you're on a straight path and someone begins to just deviate. Even if it's an incremental deviation, the further you go, the farther away they get. And isn't that what happens? If you step just 1% away from the straight and narrow path that God has called you upon, might still be able to go to church and call yourself a Christian and then it's one and a half percent then two percent then three then ten then twenty then fifty suddenly you're out here in the field wondering what happened and you still think you're on the path you're not that's why the scriptures is constantly calling us back to the gospel, back to Jesus. If anything, the book of Romans is extremely repetitive. I mean, he takes these ideas of justification and righteousness, and after a while, you feel like you've been hammered with it. Well, there's a reason. Well, what do they, I think it was Dr. Delhu say when he said, in our communion service, he says, why does Jesus call us to remember? Because we forget. It's that simple. And it, we forget how easy it is to deviate. No one is righteous. They've all turned aside. And this verse, turned aside, is only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's here. It's in Romans 16, 17. And in 1 Peter 3.11. But in the Old Testament, it's used 127 times. Because it was used to describe the people of Israel. Over and over again. That they turned away. They turned aside. And together, uh, they have become so valuable to the kingdom of God. Uh, no. 
they've become worthless, trash, something to be discarded. You can't even put them on eBay. You know, because no one's going to click the buy it now for one penny. It's worthless. No one does good. Not even one. <laughs> he so lovingly escalates this to say, their throat is putrid. It's an open grave. And I'm not, I'm suspecting that the grave is not empty. This is putrid. This is a stench to God. Their throat, what they say that comes out is horrid. They use their tongues to deceive. James 3.8 No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, which you wonder if Paul had that verse in mind because it had been written long before Paul wrote the book of Romans, probably 25 years earlier, been in circulation throughout the church. <clears throat> he pulls this verse from Psalm 5.9 and then adds the verse from Psalm 140, the poison <coughs> or the venom of asps is under their lips. The asp is an Egyptian cobra. There are two different kinds of asps in Egypt. There's one that when you, if you, if you get bitten and you don't, don't treat it right, you can take weeks to die. There's another that a lethal dose of this particular snake is 0 0.00003 micrograms per kilogram of body weight. That's not even a drop. Someone described it as the equivalent of a flea derailing a hundred mile long train. That's how powerful it is. <coughs> the poison of this particular asp they believe is what Cleopatra used to commit suicide. When Mark Antony had died, she decided to commit suicide, said that she used the poison of an ass. She brought one of them into her room and basically made it bite her. And she was dead in minutes. This is what he's talking about here. This neurotoxin that is right under their lips and in a snake that bag of poison is behind the tooth. That's why you can milk one of these venomous snakes by pulling it back and squeezing. You can milk the, the poison out of them. It's always there, always dangerous. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Man, doesn't that sound like what we're hearing in the world today? I mean, you hear some of the things that are being said. What, in what form or fashion is that appropriate? How, how, where's the decorum here? You're not even, even hinting at being reasonable. You're just shouting curses and bitterness. And your throat is an open grave. 
Then it says their feet is, are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. They're sweeter, swift to shed blood. That's a metaphor for abortion if you've ever seen one. And then to be proud of it. October 7, 1969, the police in Montreal, Canada went on strike. They made the mistake of publicizing it. That day, both a burglar and a policeman were slain. 49 persons were wounded or injured in rioting. Nine bank holdups were committed. A tenth of the number of tenth of the number of holdups the previous year, along with 17 robberies at gunpoint. Usually disciplined and peaceful citizens joined the riffraff and went wild, smashing 1,000 plate glass windows in a stretch of 21 business blocks in the heart of the city, hauling away stereo units, radios, TVs, and clothing. Looters stripped windows of valuable merchandise. Professional burger, burglars entered the stores by doors and made off with truckholds of goods. Even a smartly dressed man scampered down a street with a fur coat over each arm and there were no policemen around because anarchy took over. And I put in my notes, wow, that sounds like Tuesday in Chicago. <laughs> anarchy, when there's no rules, when there is no one to say stop. Humanity will decline into depravity in minutes if they're given the opportunity. Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. We could do an entire excursus on the fear of God now and spend the next four hours discussing what the scripture has to say about this. And it's so true. Yes, Carl. Would you mind repeating those four macro categories again? Sure. Verses 10 to 12 are five universal statements, or five statements on the universality of sin. I put them on this next to the chart, it's easier. Then verses 13 and 14 represent sins of speech. Then 15 to 17 are sins of violence. And then the last one is verse 18, which is the root of all sin, which is a lack of fear of God. And then verse 19. Paul continues and he concludes this passage. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Oh Lord, please quickly come. I actually wrote here, Lord, sew their mouths shut. Hear my prayer. Close the sewer. Crush the evil. Cancel the bile. I mean, at some point, you, you, you just, it's so overwhelming. And yet, God's promise right here 
whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. To be fenced in, the Greek word. To cease. And the whole world will be held accountable to God. Martin Luther got it right. He wrote this. The principal point, therefore, of the law in true Christian divinity is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, the law shows them their sin. And that by acknowledgement there, by, by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek comfort, and so come to that blessed seed that is Jesus Christ. When we often will preach the, the grace of God, which we should, we forget the judgment of God which is equally important for one is not appreciated without the other it has if all you do is preach love and grace yeah that sounds very welcoming and very affirming to use a phrase that's used a lot amongst churches now but it has that idea that if you condemn anybody and you're not a loving person actually you're more loving because you don't want them to suffer the consequences of their sin. Psalm 143, verse 2 says, No one living is righteous before you. No one. In conclusion, I will read this phrase, this paragraph from a commentator named Matun. Romans 3 should give you a reality check. The reality is you are not as great, not as good as you think you are. You and I deserve nothing but judgment. And this chapter is important because if we fail to grasp what it is saying, we tend to become unteachable and unconcerned about our need to grow spiritually and unimpressed about our need to change and yield to the Lord. Satan wants us to think, I'm okay, I'm not so bad, actually I'm pretty good. I'm not like everyone else, I don't need God. And when people think this way, they are very difficult to reach. God wants us to see us as He sees us that is the reason for Romans chapter 3. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together to explore what some would say is a really difficult passage, and it is. There's no question. And yet, Lord, thank you for those teachers and those writers who have come before us, who have struggled with us, to put it in a way that we here today on July 3rd can come together and say, oh, I finally understand this passage. Lord, thank you for that gift and for the opportunity to come together and wrestle with it together. In Jesus' name, amen.